Welcome back to the Messy City Podcast. This is Kevin Klinkenberg. I am really excited today to have uh, the two Jennifers uh, on the podcast, uh, Jennifer Settle and Jennifer Griffin, my friends from the world of uh, architecture and new urbanism. Um, thanks so much for joining me. How annoyed are you when people call you the Jennifers? <laughs> great. It's great. We love it. It's it's even better when people confuse us. <laughs> it makes us seem like we're doing even more work because they I know, don't know which like, one of us did it and it doesn't matter. I'll take it. Yeah, yeah, it's like we're so. one Jennifer, but we have twice as much manpower. Women are, so, yeah. Well, there you go. There you go. Yeah. Well, I think... I think for the purposes of uh, our conversation today, I'm going to just call you Griffin and Settle uh, so we can keep it straight as to who's talking. Uh, I do want to make sure. So I I really wanted to have you both on today um, because when I had Mike Keen on uh, a few weeks ago, we had this conversation that that he got into sort of talking about pre-approved plans and, and the work that you all had done in South Bend. And I really want to dive into that uh, a little more deeply with the two of you. Uh, but before we do that, I want to make sure people uh, who don't know you know who you are. Uh, and so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, I mean, I've known both of you for a while um, and talk about like where you are now, what you're doing and and how you got to um, the kind of work that you're doing today. And I think we'll just start with uh, Griffin. Okay, awesome. Um, yeah, I... Uh... How far back do you want to go? I can start with like early childhood. There you go. <laughs> if that's where it needs to go, then that's where it needs to be. <laughs> no. Um, yeah. Uh, gosh. Um, yeah. I could actually, often when people ask me like, how did you get into architecture? Right. Um, you know, I, I grew up in just outside of Pittsburgh and in a just traditional eighties suburban community. Um, you know, we were known, like I think in high school, we, our town built, I think, the, the McDonald's with the largest it's like statue of a hamburger in it or something like that. I mean, it was one of those like totally nondescript landscape, um, no sidewalks. But we did have like this older downtown that was um, it's Irwin is, is, it was the, is the town. And it was, you know, built um, before the advent of cars. I just remember as a kid going down there and just something about it, like anytime our community had an event or a celebration, 4th of July parade, Christmas celebrations, that sort of thing, it was like everyone went there. And there was something special about that, I think, early on that I think you can feel, right, even young kids that led me to just want to know how to kind of create those places. And it had some really good old housing stock too, um, some great houses and, you know, tied up on the sidewalk. And uh, and, and the, the friends that lived down there, it was like, it just seemed like another world, right? Like you guys can walk to a store and stuff like that. And um, so I think that just was always in my mind going. And then um, Jen and I are both actually graduates of the University of Notre Dame. I'm a double dober. Um, Jen got her grad degree somewhere else. Uh, so I went both for undergrad and graduate. And then they lured me back and I've been on faculty there before. Um, so uh, I try to make it back whenever I can. But then... Um, Early on my career, I, I worked abroad. I worked in, in London and my husband and I, we kind of like uh, dotted around different places, um, you know, worked in New York City and Washington, D.C. And then um, we finally started having kids. And it was kind of that moment of like, are we going to continue to live in these big cities that are walkable and have all these amenities and are great? Or are we going to maybe kind of take what we know and, and move um, closer to family? 
And so that's how we ended up in Tulsa. Uh, my husband um, is from Tulsa. It's a huge family here. And we just said, you know, we want to dedicate and root ourselves in a place that we're just going to kind of do as much as we can to kind of create those kind of environments for our kids and our family here. So um, uh, started my practice about 10 years ago. Um, actually, probably about it was a year before we moved here, I started the practice. And um, my work is, uh, um, I'd, I'd say, ideally, uh, 50% local and 50% um, elsewhere in the U.S. and abroad. Um, and it ranges on all scales. So um, I was just talking to Jen earlier, but, you know, I just wrapped up um, some consultant work on a 12,000 acre master plan hmm. um, to um, going to be starting up some live work infill units here in the fall. So kind of, and then, you know, some zoning and code stuff with Jen and, uh, and elsewhere. So it's kind of, I kind of, I'm kind of, I got hands and everything. <laughs> so, yeah. so that's my, that's my background. Uh, and I'll pass it off to Jen. How, how often do you, I have to ask, how often do you take your kids to the gathering place? Oh, we live literally five minutes from it. So we are like, we are like midway between downtown Tulsa and the gathering place. And uh, we bought our house, um, I think it was like a year or two before the gathering place opened. And uh, it's, it's amazing. I mean, it was, yeah, it's, it's pretty incredible. So if anybody has not been to Tulsa, has not seen the gathering place, you got to all have to make a trip. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're actually uh, going to make a road trip down there in late October just to do that. It's nice, it's the most unbelievable park, you know, with kids in mind that you've ever seen in your life. It's incredible. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, all right. Settle, you're up. All right. Well, I don't know that I'll go as far back as Jen um, necessarily, <laughs> but no, always um, ha- have been an urbanist, grew up in a lot of different locations and was always curious about what makes different places uh, connect, right? to you and to your, you know, love of place and things like that. But um, I am senior associate with Opticos Design and lead of our Chicago office, which we um, opened about a year ago, exactly, actually. Mm -hmm. But before that, had my own practice. Um, I'm based in Oak Park uh, in Chicago, for anyone who doesn't know Oak Park, Illinois. Um, Mm -hmm. But had my practice, had a practice doing um, zoning and master planning um, for about five, six years before that. And that gave Jen and I lots of opportunities to connect and partner with other um, sort of amazing urbanists and just tackle projects, right, where there was a need. Um, and so it was really through that work um, with when I was partnering with Incremental Development Alliance. I think that's where we last met Kevin uh, in Kansas yep. City. Um, through that work that I was obviously, like Jen said, coming from Notre Dame, having family in that area, knew of the city and a lot of what they were doing and the great leadership they had there, but really got back on the ground and in the conversation through Incremental Development Alliance and and started this relationship with South Bend that really um, led to some amazing work over, you know, a course of four or five years. Um, just trying to build off and chip away at some of the barriers and, and housing issues that they were dealing with. And so um, super excited to talk about some of that. But then uh, about a year ago, right, you know, I think we all recognize the need for housing issues have uh, reached the forefront of cities' minds. And so there was really a need um, for um, firms that were looking into these issues that focused on both zoning and design. 
And Opticos does that really well. I had worked with them 15 years ago out in California. We had kind of been ruminating on this idea of um, starting an office here. And it kind of worked well in terms of timing for both of us about a year ago. And so since then, I've just been um, dove headfirst into to their great body of work um, and really focusing on missing middle housing, zoning reform, and all that good stuff. And so that's sort of rambling introduction. No, um, that's true. That's so where we're at. I appreciate that. So how, tell me about then, how did the two of you end up like with the first project that you worked on together? How did that come about? Uh, and what was that? Yeah. So Jen and I, I know we, yeah. I, um, we <laughs> I have known each other for a long time, all the way back to, to Notre Dame, right. Yeah. Undergraduate days. Um, and have always been an admirer of her work. And then, so when I got involved in um, jumping into South Bend's zoning code update, um, was one of the bigger projects uh, early on in my LLC days that um, I took on and, and so was looking for support. Um, and I don't remember where we first sort of reconnected, Jen. Um, I think we were sort of running think- in similar... Circles. Yeah, I think we reconnected. We first kind of chatted when you were interested in kind of going off on your own. And yeah. I had just done it a couple years prior. And so there was just like as two, you know, female parents trying to start a business, uh, we kind of uh, yeah. connected. And then just from that, as work came up and yeah, I think the, 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 the first full on project that we did, like officially that that we plugged into together was the zoning code update and the city yeah. with, that you got with the city of South Bend. Um, yeah. Which so was, then, yeah. Fantastic. No, yeah, so it was a good time. We had been, yeah, that's right. We had connected as sort of um, just supporting each other and growing a network of truly, you know, women that were sort of um, cared about urban design backgrounds and architecture and were doing this type of work. And so, um, whenever we needed extra hands or capacity would connect. And certainly Jen was a mentor on on that work um, of establishing and building uh, my work there. And then when, when South Bend came, um, had some opportunities to bring her great graphic skills into that. And then of course, when the city, um, when we finished up the zoning code update and the city sort of came and said, all right, we want to do pre-approved buildings. And I was like, well, I know someone who is sort of, the best at architecture um my focus had been really you know on zoning um and urbanism and i said well i know jen that's her sweet spot right on the architecture side um and so we went in on that project together full force i I should say jen is very modest she's like she could fully She's fully capable of all realms, but it was, <laughs> it was it's always fun to work together. So whenever we find the op- the opportunity to do so. Uh, I, yes, but I avoid in. construction documents at all costs. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's not the fun part uh, at all, yeah. that's for sure. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that's actually, it's a really cool story. I, I'm always interested. Uh, I can't help but be interested in, like, in how people come around to starting their own business you know, within this world, it's not easy. It's obviously a, a, a real challenge. Um, and th- there's a lot of great aspects of being your own boss. There's also a lot of t- things that are really tough. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if you could maybe just for a minute, we could talk about that sort of like the ups and downs of working for yourself. Oh, yeah. 
that's a whole other time. podcast. How much? Yeah. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. That's like a yeah, it's a series. Well, I think you know, for me, and and probably not too dissimilar for Jen, um, but when I worked for Opticos as sort of my start of my career, and it really solidified, right, this desire to work in this intersection. Um, between architecture and planning um, and and do those types of projects. And then for, you know, a variety of reasons based on family and cost of living and all of those things, wanted to um, come back to the Midwest and get closer to family and um, came here and worked in a really great architecture firm uh, for a couple of years, but was really missing that, that scale of projects. And a lot of that here um, is driven by the regional planning, you know, or the metropolitan planning agencies. And it's hard to tap into that work. Right. Um, and I didn't necessarily want to be at that within that realm of work. Um, and then, you know, had a, had a couple of kids and it gets harder to make the nine to five gigs and in especially longer hours work. Um, and it was, uh, I really wanted to sort of step away and focus on just the projects that I was really passionate about. Um, however they may come. And so was really fortunate to sort of take that risk and lean on folks who had done it before, both of yourselves included, right? Um, so there is a path forward for that, especially within the urbanist world. And um, and ever since I've been, been busy and I think, but as those projects grew and grew and the impact was real and kind of found my place in different partnerships, right? the ones that were really fruitful and exciting were the ones where I was able to work with others um, like Jen and we could collaborate and come together and, and really sort of, it was one of the most efficient teams, right. You could possibly make, right. We were all working limited hours, um, but we're super passionate and spoke the same language, um, but bringing different skill sets and we could, we could do a lot. Um, and so that was sort of the peak. I think the challenge, of course, is all the things we know about running your own business that you don't think about, right? The housekeeping and the overhead, oh, yeah. um, the insurance, all of those things. And as projects, the opportunity, certainly after the zoning code update, there was opportunity um, to do larger, you know, even more impactful projects. But with that comes the capacity, right? Limited capacity of just one person or leaning on each other. Um, and so those are some of the biggest challenges, right? Is that capacity issue and how do you build that network and uh, do all the other, um, you know, get paid and, uh, make the numbers work. Right. And, and also protect your time in that situation, right? Cause you become valuable as a single person who can come in and help do this work. Um, that there's like, I think we started the conversation this way, Kevin, and there's a lot to say yes to and a lot of really exciting work. Yeah. Um, and we want to want to do it all. Um, but yeah, so that's Jen, what else? Yeah. Uh, no, I think yeah. um, it uh, really, it, I think starting my own practice, I was kind of, it was my only alternative. Right. Um, so I did it when I had, when we were preparing to have our first child and um, like you both, it's one of those things, what you do professionally doesn't feel like a job, right? You're very passionate about it. So it was like a vehicle for me to continue doing what I love, but also adding in 
that other element of life that I love that I, you know, was be, becoming a parent. And so it was like, I was not interested. It, it just gave me the freedom, the flexibility. Um, and it's been, I mean, Jen, we all, you guys know it's a challenge, right? Cause there's no, I'm still a, you know, single person LLC. And so, you know, there's no one that you can pass the baton to when you want to go on vacation or something, <laughs> right? You got to, you got to respond and, and that sort of thing. But I think what it, it, it it's forced me to prioritize, right? Um, I've been very, um, I've been very blessed that like, I've never, uh, I haven't had to spend a whole lot of time trying to get work. Um, you know, I think uh, new urbanists and um, people uh, with our architectural background, there's a good network out there of folks um, doing really good work. And once you kind of meet up and tap into those folks and connect with them, um, there's just, you know, there's just a lot of possibility. And um, it's been nice because, you know, when projects come along that just don't really seem like a, a great fit, like um, I'm able to say, you know, it's maybe not the, uh, I'm maybe not the right person for this um, and just kind of keep focused on the innovative work, like the pre-approved buildings and the zoning code updates and, you know, infill, mixed use infill and stuff like that, that um, if I was trying to float a larger company, I think would be challenging. I wouldn't have the bandwidth, but it would be challenging, right? Like I, yeah. I can just kind of pick and choose the work um, that, that I think is really going to move the needle and make an impact. So, yeah. This and kind I, of- this conversation kind of reminds me of, uh, there was a blog post that uh, Aaron Wren just put out this week that talked about the difference between open networks and closed networks. And I think uh, within the field of new urbanism, uh, it's always been a remarkably open network uh, yeah. because there really aren't a ton of us who do it. And I think we've always been willing to learn from each other and collaborate and, you know, try to find ways to, to make the pie bigger. Um, so uh, I think that's really cool that you both, tapped into that um well, i will I'll... say oh sorry Kevin. Go ahead. no go ahead no i will say i don't tell this story often but i know mike keen has brought it up before it's something we should promote and i don't always but i do think it's it is pretty amazing what we were able to accomplish so on the, the south bend zoning code which was what ended up being a full rewrite and the staff was couldn't can't undersell them they put together an amazing effort but there were four part-time working moms that pulled that <laughs> zoning code off in 18 wow. months yeah and that was all the only people working on it except for city staff um and i think wow. that just shows the power of like what you know urbanist um when you put a, a good team together yeah I mean, what you can accomplish. there are, there are uh, entire large corporate firms that take five years to you know do a zoning yeah. right for yeah a city right so let's yeah. talk. Let's talk about that. So you got you got hired uh, to do this zoning code rewrite. Uh, was the was the initial idea then that that um, the city had an antiquated zoning code and it needed a total refresh? Or where did that where did that come from? Who was really pushing it from the city's end? Yeah. So it started by the city brought in Incremental Development Alliance to really test and look at some of their zoning, and what came out of that was sort of a list of barriers that were preventing small scale development um, in their zoning. And so the city embarked on a really um, incredible effort, but to tackle some of those barriers incrementally and make Mm -hmm. incremental changes to their zoning code. So they had been working and that was coming from Tim Corcoran and Michael DeVita at the city um, 
and and making those efforts based on recommendations that came out of the incremental development of work. And then um, as that effort really gained support in large part from Mike Keen and, and what he's done for the local developers there, um, they gained enough, I think, success from those small changes to to say, all right, we're ready and accepted for sort of a zoning overhaul. And so that work was really about um, reformatting the entire code to be more usable and more friendly for local developers, and then to open up and really solidify this need for um, neighborhood infill, right? And so we sort of were able to build on the small amendments and really add to them and make them into a full new zoning code that was really easy to use that had the development community in mind of how you would um, design and develop a project and simplify it, right? Get rid of all that other stuff. They made some key changes, but then get rid of all the other stuff that didn't make sense. Um, and so the premise for that whole project was really like, let's go through. I met with city staff on a monthly basis and we would just tackle piece by piece of the code and sit down and say, does this regulation make sense? Do we need it? Um, and so worked really closely with staff to sort of go through that and then, um, reformat that. And so, you know, some of the key things were of course, you know, eliminating parking minimums, creating a new zone specifically for that missing middle, um, neighborhood infill, um, calibrating, you know, setbacks and subdivisions ordinances for their local conditions. And so that was, um, touched everything from A to Z in the zoning code to sort of align it with this idea that we want to promote neighborhood infill and sense of place. Right. Um, and so that was, um, and just make it as user friendly as possible. And so that was sort of where that work came out of. And it was really, um, the city took on the onus of uh, really educating council Right. And meeting with a lot of small groups and building that support um, for those zoning. And it was the quietest um, council meeting adopting that code that I've ever been in. And it didn't feel <laughs> right that it didn't feel real that there was no because they had sort of taken every opportunity to have bring everybody up to speed on small changes so that when the big picture thing came through, it was no there were no surprises and it made sense. Um, so it was a really great process. I mean, that sounds like it because it, it's so common in these efforts that uh, you get bogged down uh, in, in process uh, and uh, kind of lose sight of what it is you're actually trying to accomplish. And, and also there, you know, I always tell people for every uh, for every regulation in a zoning code, there's a there's a reason there's a constituency for it. And um, there are real challenges in doing things like eliminating parking minimums. And uh, even if you are, I think they're the right thing to do. They can be really, really hard. Uh, were there areas of um, significant pushback when you were working through all this or what were, were there one or two things that created more controversy? Yes, but there were like, it was weird things. It wasn't exactly what you would expect. And I think it was sort of a testament to how they rolled it out in terms of those initial amendments sort of um, tested the waters for a lot of changes. So with the parking minimums, you know, they eliminated it, eliminated them in their sort of neighborhood centers um, and tested it out and on some of their corridors and, and proved that it wasn't a problem. And then, so when it got applied citywide, 
it didn't feel nearly as daunting to the community. So there wasn't as much pushback as you would imagine on things like that. There was on some of um, like conditions for, you know, mixed use buildings for height or the larger multi-family buildings on, on how it, you know, met the, the river, right? Things like that, setbacks for that or requirements of sort of those bigger buildings that we were putting into play. Um, got a little bit of pushback from the development community, but not a ton because we, one of the things that they really did that I think um, helped in that respect was that as they made these smaller changes and, and as they, as we revised different sections of the zoning code, they vetted them with developers and their hardest developers, right? To say, how would you crack this, hmm. right? What, what gives you pause, you know, or what would you, you know, get frustrated with, with this, with these different standards. And we received that immediate feedback before there was even a draft, right? And they were doing that with nonprofit developers, with community groups and with um, different developers to say what, you know, how does this feel to you? Does it make sense? And what were those areas that you would push back? And so we addressed them and we were, and they, they really responded, right? At no point did they go, um, to engagement with something, you know, solidified or said, we have to do it this way. Um, it was yeah. really a response to that development community and the, and the community at large, the neighborhood groups. I, th I think that like goes to the point, like an overarching theme in South Bend. And, and uh, we joked with Tim before about this, but like South Bend's tagline should just be like incremental everything, right? Like yeah. they, they, you know, incremental development, incremental code update, incremental, you know, introduction of a pre-approved building program. I mean, you can just keep going through. I think, cause I think one of their biggest successes has been like the way they've reached out to um, the folks doing this work or striving to do this work in the community and getting them involved. Right. Like, and, and because of that, like Jen said, like as they were, you know, the first code amendments that they were making were things that were like, should have been done 20, like 10 years ago, right? Like it just wasn't an issue. So they were building trust, right? With with the community. So that when they came with something that's a little bit more of a uh, one that would be cause some pause, they've had some of those relationships established um, and, and they were building that rapport so they could have a meaningful conversation and talk about the pros and cons and, and you know, figure out what the right calibration was um, to move forward. But I think that's really been one of their biggest success stories, just their process of going through and building. Because in the, in the process, they've really kind of built up and supported the community in doing this work, right? Because they've involved them directly in the process as a, as a meaningful participant and collaborator. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's been, it's been cool to kind of see that. I, I, I think wonder... that's a good segue too, to the pre-approved, okay. but go ahead, Kim. Well, I was just going to say, I wonder, you can uh, let me know if you think this is right or wrong, but I wonder if also there are a couple of things that might have helped. One is, uh, like I talked about with Mike, you know, South Bend is not Austin, it's not Nashville, it's not a booming city. And so they're really looking uh, for investment. They're really trying to make things work. They're trying hard. Uh, and mm -hmm. and then secondly, like the scale of the community is, you know, it's not a tiny city. Um, but it's not a real big city either. So my guess is the people in city government have a much closer relationship with uh, their citizens, the developers. They probably know who the people are a lot more intimately than, than say, like a really large city. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's fair. That it's a great scale. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a great scale, but also some really good people 
in certain positions that um, both in the private and public and nonprofit side that like realize like there's so much this work to be done. Like, let's just help each other do it, you know, um, which I think, yeah, like when you get into a larger state, like even in Tulsa, right, there is there's kind of this competition among local developers for land and for, you know, like who's got the next deal and who's getting the subsidy and who has to deal with the city. And it's uh, there's less of that that I that I've ever perceived, well, if any, in, in South Bend. It's just like, hey, you know, there's so many sites to infill. We're all here to kind of support the city and support our community. Like, let's let's work together and, and do this, um, which is, which is a fantastic environment to be, to be a part of. Um, yeah. That's great. So let's dive into the pre-approved, uh, plan, uh, aspect. Uh, how, how did this conversation start or who, who initiated this, uh, discussion? Yeah. So as we were finishing up the zoning code, Tim Corcoran, um, who really sort of overarching lead on, on all of this work, um, at least formulating it and guiding it, he kind of said, right, I think Jen touched on it, but there's sort of this sense in South Bend of what do we need, right? And let's figure out how to get it done. Um, they're not trying to check boxes or follow, you know, some formulated or bureaucratic path. It's really what's the need. And so the zoning code was, like, I think, a huge success. But at the end of the day, the reality was, right, things were really tough to pencil out and get built. Right. They had a lot of vacant land. Um, land cost is low. So they removed those regulatory barriers, but it was still a really tough sell um, to say, go develop all these small parcels. Um, and so the idea of pre-approved buildings had been, you know, um, starting to, to gain traction, I think, um, amongst the new urbanist community and certainly within the incremental development alliance. Um, and so Tim really said, I want to do this. I want to do it um, specific for South Bend um, and build as a way to build off the zoning code and really incentivize um, neighborhood infill um, and provide economic opportunities for, for all the locals and groups that helped calibrate the code. Um, so that's yeah, where I, it really came out of. Yeah. I often, um, and I often talk about when Jen and I talk about, you know, communities, cause we, you know, folks have, reached out to us from other communities and tell us about the pre-approves process and, and how do you develop program? Like, you know, and um, when I kind of, when we talk about it, we always say it's like, look, it's, this is no other, this is no different than any other um, sort of subsidization or support, financial support tool to get development, the types of development the community wants to see. But the difference with that is that it's one that is um, really helps to democratize, democratize, you know, development, right? Like it's kind of one of those tools that like, it's not a TIF, um, you know, it's, it's not something you need a legal team to sort out an agreement with the city to, to do, but you know, it's, it's a tool that helps to like overcome, which we were doing is like the appraisal gap, right? That like, there hadn't been any new construction in these neighborhoods in a long time and the existing buildings were not in great shape. And so, you know, when they were trying to get comps, they couldn't. And so how could we, how could we lower that financial bar? Um, and and it's, it was one of many tools, right. That the city um, has pursued and, and developed and that sort of thing. Um, but it's one that's like totally open to anybody, right. You could be, you could be a developer and use it. You could be just someone who, um, buys a lot and lets the house to use it and, 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 and like really kind of opens it up 
to, to anyone to really participate in that neighborhood revitalization, as well as pathways for building, you know, local wealth for, right. for folks wanting to, to jump into that. So, so I want to talk about a, a couple aspects of this. Uh, I, I hope you can, I know you can address, but uh, just help, uh, help me and others understand. One is the process you all used and, and to create uh, a pre-approved plan uh, process within city government. And then secondly, is like, what is that interaction like uh, from the standpoint of being a developer or somebody who wants to build one of these plans? So I wonder if you could talk about both of those perspectives. Yeah. yeah. Um, you want to take that, Jen, or you want me, or? I'll start and you can chime in. You can add to okay. it, I'm sure. I think the basis of, you know, coming off of the zoning code, we sat down with city staff, um, and the local you know, community to say, what are the building types that we need, right? And there was sort of this understanding of what are the ones that have you been hearing? Um, nonprofit and developers are interested in building. What are, um, what fits within? So the, the first part was sort of identifying a catalog of potential building types, right? That might work. And then looking at, the lot sizes, right, and the neighborhood zones to see what fits on those lots and come up with building types um, that met that highest and greatest need. Um, and then honing in on that, and the next piece was really doing um, some initial performas, right, to understand which would be the most beneficial and impactful um, and get us closer to something that could be built. And so we yeah. looked at what would fit on lots um, and narrowed down the catalog of building types. And then we focused on, I think initially, you know, five um, types that would that would be the best fit to start. Go ahead, Jen, sorry. Yeah, I was gonna say, we started, I think with 12 was like initial, like wish yeah. list, right? When we started talking yeah. to the city, started talking to the community and we started talking to the city and all, you know, we were all talking as like all the missing middle types, right? Like, like, let's do it all, right? And um, and then, yeah, it was, there was a there was a very intentional lot analysis process where we were looking at where do you want these most, where, like, you gotta start somewhere. So what are the neighborhoods you would maybe most just to, you know, apply these pre-approved buildings? And um, so did some lot analysis there to see what would fit, um, which also helped inform us the actual buildings that we ended up pursuing, like their actual width and their depth and what we could fit on the lot. It was like calibrated specific because we found that in some of these neighborhoods, these uniquely narrow lots on, on, on in some of them, like 33, 32 feet wide. So we knew we needed a product type that was going to fit that lot. So we couldn't just throw down like the standard 24 foot wide um, product type and make sure we had the five foot setback on each side and that sort of thing. So we need that. Um, but then, yeah, I think it was the, the, the financial analysis um, process early on, which Jen mentioned, which was really, you know, we um, uh, had a team member that was running pro forma and said, look, you would like these 12, but there's only five that actually pencil out now, right now in the future. And like anything, this is a living program that's going to be adapted and added to and that sort of thing. As new construction happens and comps become available, then we can continue to span our, you know, expand our palette of pre-approved buildings, which we actually have. Um, we had, we started with five and we it ended up being seven after the first go because there were some variations. There was some like increment in the plan. We did a, a narrow house with a two bed and then we talked about, you know, we added a, a kind of an ensuite onto the back of it that you could. So we ended up getting seven, seven building types. And then uh, shortly within like, I think probably 
three or four months of finishing that, came back with two additional building types that they had developers who were interested in building in these neighborhoods. And so we added those. And I think, and, and I think that's the intent of this is that it, as opportunities arise to add these types, um, we will. Um, but it was like, look, we're going to be realistic to start off the bat because, you know, the worst thing is to develop this really complex or intricate and tool and it for, and for nothing to happen, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they were very intentional. Like we we're going to make sure that you know once we launch this, we've got um, things queued up and and people ready to go, and and it's actually you know it's viable on all ends, you know, financial and and physical and everything like that. Yeah. So right. we developed. Oh god. No, oh, we man. developed the designs, the initial schematic designs, um, and started building up the um, sets for those initial five. And then we, you know, cost vetted them, did cost estimates um, with local, with the local lumberyard, with local builders, different local builders to get multiple opinions. And we started to build those sets, everything from, you know, a typical site plan condition, because of course the one requirement is that, you know, a developer has to submit a site plan. Um, But so we started developing the details of those designs. Um, So we established the five building types that we would focus on. And then we started to put together the sets and look at how could we add variation. And so we started developing three different elevation options that kept the same exact building footprint to add some variety. Um, And then we really cost um, vetted those through a cost estimate process and we started made adjustments, right? And then the mm-hmm. other piece we did was start to vet the construction details with local builders and trades to say, is this how you would build it? Um, so that we could really get the most simple, efficient design that met that goal of, you know, incentivizing better built outcomes, higher levels of design for these smaller, more affordable products. Um, and so we would go back and forth, right? We'd get some feedback and then we'd go back to the design um, to try to simplify it and craft an option that worked. Um, and then once we got, I think, to a place where um, the building department planning had signed off on those designs, we started to put together a catalog that spoke to some of the reasons why we picked these designs um, and gave some illustrations of what they might look like. Um, and then worked with the city really closely to establish sort of what the process looked like. I think that was to your second point, Kevin, your question was like, so the city did a lot of work um, with their Build South Bed program to establish, you know, a website that walked people through the entire entitlement and development process and made it really easy. And so this sort of fed into that. Um, So what is possible is that people can look at the catalog and say, oh, I want to do this building. And then they submit a form, right, essentially to the city that requests and tracks who's requesting these. And then they get the full um, architectural plans for that building. Um, and so then when it comes time to permit, they submit a site plan and they have to sort of fill out some information about which elevation option they're doing, um, what zoning district is within and things like that. But otherwise, it's a pretty simple um how much, process, how, much, right. how much does it cost an applicant to fill out that form and do do all that? Nothing, Nothing more than the typical permit application fee. Okay, yeah. so the city's not trying to charge for the for the plan. So then, but you all designed these buildings, right? 
So I, yeah. I mean, I have to ask a boring kind of architectural. Uh, business, <laughs> no, you're not the first. I know. Yeah. 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 Which is, We've like, do you, so do you don't get paid like on a per use basis for any of these? No. So um, we uh, the our contract with the city is that we granted the, the city of South Bend a non-exclusive license to use okay. um, the plans, the permit plans. Uh, for development projects within the city limits of South Bend. So okay. they can use and distribute them to anybody who's going to be using them in the city of South Bend. Um, so I know, and Tim, Tim Joseph is like, yeah, people keep calling me or I've got an application who's someone who has a site like in somewhere in Michigan. I know. Yeah. So I was like, sorry, I can't, can't share that. Which just, and honestly, there's like, I mean, obviously for, yeah. as, as a professional, you know, it's like, it helps to, um, you know, protect your business, but also as a liability thing too, right? Like these plans have not been vetted, um, though, you know, with their codes and everything else. Um, and which is interesting because we have since we're developing one now for the city of Kalamazoo. And, um, though they're both Midwest cities, there are some differences actually, um, in, in, in terms of some of the details that, that we're showing in, in our drawing. So it, it also, you know, obviously just protects the cities, and and uh, the architects from any potential liability when when applying to a, a right. jurisdiction that's not what has its initial design for. Um, I do want to go back real quick though and just mention I think um, and, and Jen mentioned this, but I just think it's really important for like any city or or other folks that are listening who are interested in doing this is that um, the process you know as Jen mentioned we were constantly kind of going back both the city directly and our team going and talking to. Um, local builders and contractors and nonprofits and for-profits and, and asking their opinions and getting real numbers from them. And, and this, honestly, this was queuing them up because these were the first users, right? So they were like, they were fully, you know, on board with this and like they were bought in. So when it was launched, they were ready to go, right? We weren't doing this in a room or in the side or in a vacuum and which was like, you launch, you're like, here you go. And they're like, you know, developers just kind of, well, I don't know about this product type and it might not meet the, my market clientele or whatever, you know? Um, and uh, so I think that's really important. Um, and then I think the other thing that's really important too is um, uh Doing this, like we had to take our designer and architect hats off a lot uh, as a part of it and understand the finances is like, right? Like we could design like, much more elaborate and intricate buildings, but we were in neighborhoods that were just really struggling to make anything pencil out. So I know like we went through, I think it was like the narrow house in particular, Jen, like um, Jim had ran a, a pro forma initial form and we were just off of it penciling out. So we like shaved two feet off of it to get the square footage down so that, um, right. And the details were, it, these were all very simple boxes, right. We just wanted to make sure proportions and whatever. And the, and really the public front was what looked best and everything had a front porch and that sort of thing. So how can we do that as simply and cost effectively as, as, as possible? Um, so that these buildings, cause in the end, like, you know, how can we get these buildings built, um, uh, in these neighborhoods. So I think, I think those are important. So, so let me ask you a couple of other just basic um, questions on this. So then uh, I see this catalog on the website and let's say I own a vacant lot. Uh, I go and I pick one, I fill out the form uh, and uh, you know, I choose the elevation uh, that I want it to have. Uh, at that point, then uh, you're basically through a a zoning and a building permitting review, uh, more or less. Is that just to clarify for anybody who ha hasn't thought about this before? Is that that's the idea? 
Yeah, so you still submit it as you would a normal permit application, but it, the timeline for review is really a couple of days, right? One or one day, maybe. They've already sort of reviewed and vetted it. Um, and the, the savings is really, right, you don't have to go through that architectural design process. Right. Um, right, and you get a good outcome that's calibrated for lots. And so um, South Bend already had a fairly streamlined permitting process. Um, and so some, some cities have used pre-approved projects to really shorten that timeline of review. And I think it does in South Bend as well, but the goal was really to elevate um, the design out, uh, outcomes and reduce right. those soft costs. Right, because um, you're, you're getting buildings that look like they fit in the historic neighborhoods of South Bend. Mm -hmm. And that yeah. are easy to, that you know they've been cost vetted, right? right? Yeah. For maximum simplicity and efficiency, but still look good. And that that's something where um people really struggled yeah. Um, yeah i think too it's it like so some of these types there were some neighborhoods right that they heard duplex six sixplex and and it, you know we're just like oh i don't you know because there were some really bad examples that had been built you know in within the city of south Bend. and i think it it helped any kind of nimbyism overcoming that because they were able to show them like this is what i remember this one i remember liz had we had a call with um one of the, the city planners um, and, and she was like, yeah, we were talking to some neighborhood uh, folks and they, we were mentioning duplexes and they were, you know, this one lady was getting kind of <laughs> nervous and she showed them what we were working. I think it was the stack duplex we were looking at. And she was like, oh no, I'd like, I, yeah, I'd like that in my neighborhood. You know, so it was like, it, it helps to overcome any, any concern or hesitation with folks about what a other than single family house would look like in their neighborhood. Um, so it, it kind of overcomes that as well. And so developers, obviously, like, you know, they know that they're not going to get pushback from the community if they're doing this um, as well. So. So the other thing that I want to ask is, let's say that uh, I look at the catalog and I'm like, oh, I really like this uh, house design, but I want to, you know, I want to change the kitchen layout. I want to maybe do a six foot bump out on the back to make the bedroom bigger. How, how does that work? We knew there was going to be a lot of that. And we were, that was our main concern, even going to the project of, with the city of saying, you know, how are you going to deal with people that want to change these? And we've, we've definitely had some lessons learned. We did in the, the, through that process, we identified um, very clearly things that you could change and things that you couldn't. Right. And so the, um, some of the, supplemental materials to the actual building set lays out okay you can change you know some things within the footprint in terms of a door location or you know whether or not you want this closet or not um we don't really care right mm -hmm. um as long as it's structurally sound and obviously um that's on the onus of the contractor to to do those good practices but we did say, right, we identified within the sets, there are some windows, right? You can remove non-egress windows on the rear and the side of a property if you're not facing a street to reduce some of those costs, right? Because windows can be one of the biggest costs. You can remove the trim on the back of the building um, if cost is, if it's really that tight, right? So we laid, but you can't ever do that on the front of the building, right? You can't ever remove the porch. Um, you can use different materials, right? So if we said, ideally, a couple of the things I can mention, Jen, you probably have more, but you know, we, we put details in there to use two by six 
walls, right? That are better insulation and more structurally. But if you had to go down to two by fours and that met all of your codes, that's okay. As long as you're not changing that building footprint. Um, you know, we recommend using cement bore siding or hardy board siding. If you have to use vinyl, right, to cost save, that's okay, right? Those changes are allowed, but you can't change window and door placement or removal of a porch. The things that we know contribute to a good um, urban environment and neighborhood character. And so that's sort of, we tried to lay that out best as possible. There's certainly been a request uh, and that's something that, um, Jen, you can speak to, but that we're working through. And I think that's sort of one of the questions that cities are grappling with and people that are doing pre-approved plans are grappling with what does that process looks like, look like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, I mean, the city, like I said, it's a good size. So when these come up, um, they've been able to handle them. They've, they've reached out to us whenever there's been a question about, you know, what, what do you all think if they change this or that sort of thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, we haven't run into anything, um, anything major um, that has caused this pause that we haven't been able to respond to, to give, give people the answers that, that they're looking for. Um, yeah. How do, how do the local architects interact with this process and are, are they try are, are you, they or others, or are you looking to add plans to the pre-approved list? So for the city of South Bend, like Jen listed, we've added this one story cottage because that was a request. We've added the side by side duplex. And I did. We failed to mention we should. We work with the other person on our team. Um, so Jim Kuman was running the cost analysis, but we also worked with um, Pat, Patrick um, Lynch. Yeah. Thank you. Patrick Lynch, um, who's a local South Bend architect on the sixplex in particular, because that's one that will have to be stamped um by a local engineer architect and he worked with us um, very closely he was coming from a background of working with the south bend heritage foundation so understood some of the process and methodologies of of nonprofit developers and some of their concerns and was really a, a huge voice in understanding local codes um construction techniques and so he was on our team developing these plans and talking through them um and I think the hope is, I mean, other places have done it different ways, right? There's, these can be a pretty big upfront cost for cities if they're trying to do them like South Bend and tackle five buildings. Um, other cities have done them where, you know, you put a competition out and local firms submit um, and build off of those. So I think there's many different ways to approach it, um, all with different benefits and challenges to both the designer and the city. Um, in terms of cost and liability and things like that. I think the hope with South Bend, especially for the sixplex, right? Because one of the things we didn't talk about is I think pre-approved buildings are ideal for the IRC buildings yeah. and they've worked really well. It's a lot trickier to go into that missing middle scale, which of course we want to advocate for yeah. um, because you need that local, um, that you need the engineer or architectural stamp. And so the idea was that, um, these provided an avenue for pre-reviewed plans, but they also provided an inspiration um, and a concept, a proof of concept for what a sixplex could look like in South Bend and what the numbers might look like, what a duplex. And so that it um, more local designers and architectures and architects and developers 
um, could build off of that. And hopefully any variations um, that come of this could also be you know, adopted in the future as pre-approved. Right. Okay. And how's the uptake been so far? How many are you able to track? Like how many people have used it? Yeah, it's, um, they've had a lot of inquiries. Uh, there is one that might've already been completed in construction yeah. currently. Um, and then another, I believe that's either started or will start soon. Um, they just, they launched the program earlier this year. Um, oh. And then there was just a recent release um, that a, um, a nonprofit developer is, is pursuing a scattered site TIFF, I think it is, and is going to be using um, these on 37 sites. Um, and it was wow. really interesting because we heard from Tim and uh, Tim Corcoran. Um, and he, when he, when we found out about this, he said, yeah. And the comment from the, de- the nonprofit developer was like, this project wouldn't have been viable if, if we didn't have these pre-approved plans available. Um, it just would have been too cost burdensome to, to you, you know, to develop these plans ourselves. Um, so that, that was um, really great to hear. Uh, makes you feel like you're, you know, the, the, the 18 months or whatever we spent, you know, developing this, that they're they're actually being useful and helpful and helping the community, um, you know, provide that info housing. That's great. Uh, all right. Well, I know time is a little tight here for all of us today. I hate to, I, I'm sure I have more questions, but we can always, uh, we could try to do it again sometime. This is, I think, a really great introduction for people to the whole concept of pre-approved plans. And I presume that you have a uh, website uh, uh, that has like the catalog that I could share uh, as well. Yes. Yeah. yeah. The South, South Bend has a, yeah, the, their, their pre-approved program has a website with all of their, um, all that information on okay. it. All right. And I'll definitely put that yeah, in the we'll show notes uh, as well. Okay. So. Um, well, uh, I, I like to end by asking each of my guests just a real quick question. I call this the Messy City Podcast. And so I like to uh, ask people when I say that, uh, that phrase of Messy City, like something that what comes to mind for you? Is there a place, a neighborhood, a city or a town that has that uh, sort of uh, less plan, more uh, organic, for lack of a better word, uh, feeling that uh, that describes sort of a messy place. What what might come to mind for for you? I'll start with Jen Settle. No, that's an easy one for me. My family is from and I was born um, outside of New Orleans, and that's that's the best example of a messy city that's just unmatched. Right. That, it's my, that um, has probably <laughs> been my number one answer so far. You'll be happy to know. Ah, so. uh, well, that's good to know. But I, I, my roots are there, and that's uh, where my my love of both architecture and urbanism comes from. So that's terrific. What about you, Jen? Yeah, that's, um, yeah, Jen's got, that was my, <laughs> one of my initial thoughts. Uh, but ultimately, I think, I mean, I think really, uh, for me, I just think about, um, you know, my own community. And uh, uh, I think it, when you go beyond just the physical messiness of place, um, just uh, all the things that are interacting to, to make a place home. And so, um, you know, the, the people, the culture, um, the, the built environment, the food, um, and so I, I think that those are always contributing. So I'd have to say, it's just, I think about, you know, my own neighborhood and all of, all the pieces that, that make it up and though it's messy, it's beautiful. So, um, you know, things can be great and messy at the same time. Sometimes absolutely. the best stuff is, is messy. So you're speaking my language. Absolutely. So. 
All right. Well, thank you both so much for this. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure. And uh, I look forward to learning more and talking more. I think this is a really, this whole pre-approved uh, plan thing is, is uh, it's an incredibly important deal. Uh, almost everywhere I go, people are talking about it. Uh, and uh, I think it has a, a lot of promise uh, for the future. So thanks, uh, thanks for the work that you're doing and for sharing a little bit about it here today. Well, thanks so much, Kevin. All right. Yeah, thanks care. for having us, Kevin. You bet.